Well, hello and welcome again to another Battleground PA podcast. This is Joyce Davis, uh, the opinion editor for Pen Live, and I am joined today by Terry Madonna, the director of the Center for Politics and Public Affairs and Franklin and Marshall's College Poll. We're delighted to have him here, as well as John Bayer, who has, we've just announced, is Penn Live's new political columnist. He's a legendary journalist in our area covering the Capitol, and we are also delighted to have him here with us to talk about one of, I think, the most important issues facing us in 2020. And do we believe these doggone polls? The first thing that we really have to acknowledge is that a lot of people don't believe them. But that's why we have two people here to kind of talk about it and to explain what goes into polling, whether they've been accurate in the past, and whether we can have any confidence in them in the future. This is Battleground PA, a Penn Live podcast discussing the issues that matter to Pennsylvanians and documenting the events in our state that will shape the battle for your vote in the 2020 presidential elections. Let's start now with Terry Madonna, just briefly talking a little bit about his work at Franklin and Marshall and the importance of what he'll be doing. And then we'll switch over to John so he can at least talk about whether he relied at all on the polls when he did his many famous columns. So I was his pollster for many years. (laughs) All right. So he must have believed it. Philadelphia Daily News. Yeah. Well, let's start with the fact that Hillary Clinton defeated Donald J. Trump by 2.2 percentage points nationally. The national polls were really fairly accurate. The Real Clear Politics average had Hillary beating then-candidate Trump by about four points. So if you take the margin of error in the polls, they were, national polls are really, uh, you know, spot on. Mm -hmm. It was some of the state polls that had problems. And some of the state polls had problems depending on when they were interviewing voters. In the case of F&M, and we had been doing polls for 28 years at Millersville University and at Franklin and Marshall College, the Franklin and Marshall College polls 28 years old. And this was the first time we were off in the way in which we were off, and there are explanations for it. I'll get to that, and then we can talk about some of the other aspects of polling. We stopped doing interviews 10 days before the election, 10 days. So within a 10-day period, 20-25% of the voters in Pennsylvania made up their mind or changed their mind with the largest proportion of those voters going to Trump. Then about nine days before the actual election in 2016, FBI Director James Comey publicly said he was opening up the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails, again, causing polls to... If you weren't in the field, you didn't pick it up. If you weren't doing the interviews as we were. And so some aspects had to do with that. But there are other more complicated things with polling that uh, we can certainly talk about. Sure, after, and, and we will. John weighs in. Yeah, John, go ahead. How, did, how much did you rely on the poll? Well, I mean, polling just drives political coverage, particularly the further out you are from an election, because reporters aren't in the field nearly as much as pollsters are this far out. And, and the same applied in 2016. Terry's absolutely right. The problem in 2016 was within the states because of the way our system is. National polls were pretty much right on. Nationally, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. It was within the states, and because of the structure of the Electoral College, 
that the slippage came, and unfortunately, all polls then got categorized in the same way that all news is now categorized mm-hmm. as fake news, fake polls. And it's tough for pollsters. And there are now, I mean, there are hundreds of polls out there. And nobody hates polls or loves polls more than the people that are running. I mean, Terry can tell you he's gotten more grief over the years (laughs) from candidates and campaigns that show up on the lower end of any polling, whether they win or not. Uh, So, I mean, it's a tough business. Terry can tell you it's getting tougher I don't know how pollsters do it anymore. I mean, I don't pick up uh, calls that everybody has caller ID, cell phone, same thing. You you don't know the number, you don't answer. So I'm curious to see how they do it. And and the most important thing for me, Joyce, is even today, I, I have a great distrust of the polling that we're seeing for one reason, and it is that the the Trump base, however large it is, and I think it's probably larger than polls reflect because if you're a Trump supporter, you believe in fake polls. So if you get a call from a pollster, I think your motivation is to not tell them the truth because then that validates ultimately your belief that polls are <laughs> fake. Yeah. So I'm betting that in Pennsylvania especially, Trump probably has more support than polls are supporting. I'd love to hear Terry's thoughts on that. Yeah, John makes a a great point. And there's another aspect, and this is not scientific. We can scientifically talk about, as I just did a moment ago, what happened to some of the polls. But there was also a reluctance of Trump voters to tell anyone that they were going to vote for Trump Mm. because it was considered controversial, a vote for Donald J. Trump. And so why I say... I can't prove that scientifically, but I spent 2016 traveling all over the state. And I would hear one person after another come up to me and say, oh, not for the record, I'm voting for Trump. I think they were concerned about reprisals, concerned about what their friends might think because of the controversial nature of the Trump campaign. All all of that makes sense. But that feeds into you can't believe the polls because people lie, (laughs) you know. So, I mean, it's not that you're not doing your job. It's just that people aren't telling you the truth. But in this case, yeah, they wouldn't tell us that they, but many of them wouldn't be interviewed, as John points out. Look, John's absolutely right. We've got problems because of landlines. People won't pick up because they think it's robocall or somebody trying to sell them something. And if you talk about... Cell phones, it's where are people when you call them. They can be shopping. They could be at dinner. And so there's a way to work around that. And I can talk to you well, about but, what, what we've started yeah. to do to work around that. Well, let's, there, st- let's step back here and simply give us an overview of what it's like. I mean, what do you do? How do you do your job yeah. as a pollster? Well, first of all, what's great about it is that I have the Center for Opinion Research at Franklin and Marshall which is headed by a guy named Burwood Yost, who's a great methodologist. And basically, his operation does the interviews, does a lot of the methodological work and give me the poll, and I can report on it. I'm ultimately responsible for it. But the situation right now is complex. And so pollsters have to figure out a way to reach voters. When I started in this business, the first poll I did was in 1991, we were reaching 65 70% of the people we were trying to get a hold of. Now it's below 10%. And so that can create another kind of problem because 
of the small nature of this of where you're drawing the sample from. And by the way, that's not the only problem that exists with polls. Where are you getting the voters that you're going to interview? What list are you using to get them? When you actually do the interviews, what's the dispersion of the various groups, demographic groups that you end up completing? So who interviews does decide with? that? Who makes those decisions? Is well, it Yost? Is it you? I mean, yeah. Well, mm-hmm. well, Burwood makes the decision, mm-hmm. obviously, because that's his area of expertise. But the problem is that then pollsters have to make statistical adjustments called waiting. And when you begin to wait, what's that mean? Well, what happens if we know among registered voters, for example, that there are more Democrats in Pennsylvania, and there are, than Republicans, but you end up interviewing more Republicans? What happens if you know the past turnout by male and female, but you end up with more females than traditionally turn out? So the problem gets very complex in terms of how you do it. Yeah, I'll do this very quickly okay. and then John get back in. So here's what we do. <laughs> let's say we draw, let's just hypothetically say 3,000 names from a voter list. They're all registered to vote. That way we don't have to go to the general population and then find out if they're going to vote or not. We already know they're registered. So every person on that sample gets a letter, a letter in my name, and here's what the letter says. You have been selected to participate in a Franklin and Marshall College poll. We will call you because we have your phone number. You can call us. Here's an 800 number, no charge. And or you can open this URL that's attached and do what? Take the poll online. Now, remember, these are people we would call anyway. So why are we doing that? To overcome some of the problems that John just articulated about the reluctance of people to pick up a phone to talk to us. And because a huge proportion of the interviews get done by cell phones, you know, when you're calling people on cell phones, you don't know where they are. John, does that that really resolve the issues that you you were seeing? Well, I mean, it's certainly an adjustment, and that's what was needed. And pollsters are in the position that they're going to have to do more and more of that as a problem of getting a hold of people and getting getting their attention for long enough to take the poll continues. The one thing I wanted to point out, Terry and I, I I believe we had this discussion back in 2018 when uh, Nate Silver at 538, his big group now owned by uh, ABC News, ranked all the pollsters in America. I mean, and the rankings were hundreds. And some of the polls that we are familiar with, Quinnipiac poll, for example, was rated an A minus, which is pretty good. They looked at past elections and they looked at what the polling said and then what the results were and then ranked pollsters as a result. The Gallup poll, surprisingly, B plus, probably the most famous name in polling, got a B plus. Terry's poll, F and M, B minus, which is which is pretty good, particularly when you consider the fact that Pew Research, again, a big national name, Very good. Also, also a B minus. So among you know everybody, everybody, whenever Terry's poll comes out. You can look at newspaper comments and they say, look, he's horrible. His poll is terrible. He's never right. But over time, and as he said in Pennsylvania, he's been pretty much dead on throughout elections, whether they're presidential or U.S. senator gubernatorial. So pollsters get a bad rap right now because everybody gets a bad rap right now. Uh, those of us in the news business, those of us in the polling business. Right. But if you step back and take a look, uh, it, it's just not as bad as you think. 
And it's not like anybody's going to stop paying attention to polls. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is look at national news coverage, cable TV. Anytime a new poll comes out, we go and tear it from head to toe, right, and go right into every aspect of of it. Yeah, some of the – one of the big problems is the partisanship that exists. So I got criticized for saying that Hillary Clinton would carry Pennsylvania, therefore we're just a bunch of Democrats rigging a poll. And when I would respond, I'd say, now, wait a minute, when we – when our poll showed a guy named Tom Ridge winning the governorship or a guy named Tom Corbett when he won initially, what, in 2010. Yeah. So our polls have shown, oh, and how about a guy named Rick Santorum who happened to be our United States senator for a couple of terms. So when our polls showed Republic, but they don't go back and do that. They only look at one poll because, and, and I'm not arguing that it had a problem. I just explained the root cause of the problem. Sure. Now, in 2018, they didn't say anything when we had Senator Casey winning re-election and Governor (laughs) Tom Wolf winning re-election when we had the right winner. I didn't hear anybody say... Well, why don't we pause right here? We're going to take a little bit Mm -hmm. of a break. And then when we come back, I do think we have to address this issue, though, that you guys have touched on. We've got to address the issue of people really do have to believe what you're saying, don't they? Or maybe they don't. (laughs) You guys both brought up the, you know, nobody likes anybody anymore, right? They don't like the media. The media is suspicious. Everything's fake. Who just stay in your house and don't the talk to anybody. The New York Times didn't help anybody. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's very, very that's true. Stupid. But really, the perception and whether the public has confidence in what you're doing is important for the news media. And we're attempting to try to address that. Whether we're succeeding or not is another question. That's a poll we need on that. But (laughs) what are you doing to try to, especially as we're coming up into this battleground, what can be done to help people understand that there is a science behind this. It isn't rigged. The truth is, depending upon who's doing it, it could be rigged. But that there are legitimate, respectable places yeah. that you can trust. Well, one of the things that I point out is to, when I get a lot of calls from reporters all over the country. And one of the points I made earlier was that I won't comment about polls done by candidates. I won't comment on polls done by political parties. Largely because they have a vested interest. No candidate will release a poll that shows him or her him or her doing poorly they'll only show the ones that show them doing well or better than what we might expect it and the same with political parties that pay for polls so i would always say there are a there are a number of pollsters that do legitimate polling again that doesn't mean on any given polling site by that i mean any given election that a poll can't be off. This isn't perfect, as I indicated before. And so people have to be careful what poll they use. Here's my second point. I'm a firm believer in averages of polls, particularly good polls. So you can get on 538, as John points out, or you can go to Real Clear Politics, which I tend to use. What's the average, the average of the polls done? And you pick the time frame. So right now, for example, if you get on Real Clear Politics and you look at the Democratic battle for the nomination, the polls can show 8, 10 percentage point differences between Biden and Warren and Sanders. They're, they're all over the place. Well, it's early. There's something else. Mm-hmm. If you do a poll 
a year before an election, you're going to have a lot more variation than you should if you do a poll six weeks before an election. Yeah. yeah. John, have, how are you going to use polls this well, election? Well, uh, very carefully. I mean, f- for instance, Joyce, I Absolutely. mean, if you, if you look at the polling now, you might say, look, this is over because Fox News poll today has four of the, of the Democratic candidates beating Donald Trump, Biden by 14 points, Bernie Sanders by eight, Elizabeth right. Warren by six, and Kamala Harris by four. I just cannot believe that, and I'll tell you why. Uh, first of all, we are so far away from an election. We are not even in a campaign, technically speaking. I mean, all of life now is a campaign, as, as we all know. But we're not in the heat of a campaign where things can change in a hurry. Witness the Comey letter at the end of the Clinton-Trump race. The other thing about polling now is the number that gets ignored is something like 90 percent. Terry, correct me if I'm wrong. Something like 90 percent of voters are saying they are not positive about who they're supporting, even though they might say, yeah, I like Joe Biden over Donald Trump right now. The same with Elizabeth Warren, the same with Bernie Sanders. So if 90% of voters aren't positive about who they're supporting, what is the real validity of the poll other than to just continue the horse race kind of coverage, give us something to talk about and write about, give cable news, you know, an avenue to walk down and tear polls apart. And the same goes when you break out polling, and I like to do this myself, is look at regional and age and gender voting. And when you look at that, you get a distinctly different picture than you get if you look at just the the total numbers. We tend too often to ask people to look at the total numbers and not to look inside the poll. And when you look inside the poll, you have, for instance, very surprising to me, unless you think it through, Andrew Yang is doing amazingly well with younger voters. Now, traditionally, younger voters are not a big block. But who knows where they will be next year at this time. If younger voters really get engaged in this race as we head into the Democratic primary serious states, who knows what happens? That's a good point. But there are two issues that I think we need to raise. How do you make sure that you get a representative sample, that it's diverse enough? I mean, that seems to me to be very, very hard to do. There are lists that have all of the, let's say, in this state, registered voters on them. Right. So what you do is, what Burwood does is they randomly select two or 3,000 names, phone numbers, addresses from the voter list. They randomly select. You can't put a sample error. But to, if you randomly to, you select, how are you going to know if you're getting an African-American or a woman or someone over no, 65? You're, or, you're randomly selecting people from the voter list. So Well, then what happens is that... That's where the statistical adjustments come in if, indeed, you're light on some. Now, remember, we're also talking about two different things. Are we talking about registered voters? Yes. Or are we talking right. about registered voters who are likely to vote? Yeah. So there's Super another voters, question yeah. Yeah. that you mm-hmm. have to resolve. Right, and likely voters, are the are, that's the poll you want to read. That's the poll, mm-hmm. but we, get, we start with registered voters. Then there are questions that get asked about whether people are likely to vote. And a determination is made based on which registered voters are deemed likely that you interview. So you don't interview all registered voters. Now, early on, before we get to the last couple of elections, polls in an election cycle, we'll do registered voters. Then we'll shift to likely voters as we get closer. John's right about the variability that exists. 
But what we're trying to do now, these early polls, give you what I'll call a rough indication of where things stand. I wouldn't get over <laughs> overwrought about being so specific because, again, as I pointed out, the variation in the polls can be great depending on the methodology. Some polls are now done, all of them are done online. Mm. Online. And some of the people who take the F&M poll are doing it online because it's in the letter and the URL is there and they can sign up. Now, the study that the Center for Opinion Research did showed very little variability between the demographics of those who took them online and the people who did them through the telephone. That's what I was going to ask. Are you finding more older voters who are willing to go online and do this poll? I mean, that was, you know, I could. Well, there are more and more, obviously, more younger voters online than older voters. But more and more we're finding, I think, you go across the spread of age groups that a lot of people are online. The other point that John makes is you got to look at demographic groups. For example, millennials. There are 80 million of them. They're the largest age cohort in our country right now. They've surpassed the baby boomers. So whether we're talking about millennials or Gen X or baby boomers, 80 million of them, their turnout went up sharply in 2018. But there are other things to consider. For example, Republicans are having problems with college-educated women that for reasons that you know I'm not going to get into now. They also have problems with... Republicans with millennials. Of all the age cohorts, millennials gave a larger percentage of their vote to Hillary Clinton than any other group. Any other group. So all of that, as John accurately points out, you got to look at a whole variety of things. Not just age, but gender, race, educational background. All of those factors are important in understanding the nature of of the results in a poll. So, John, from what he's saying, it looks like millennials <clears throat> may be a determining factor, not only here in Pennsylvania even, right, yeah. as well as yeah. around the country. Yeah, it's fascinating to watch pollsters and then watch campaigns because, uh, Joyce, when you identify the, the most important thing in a campaign is who is going to vote, what, what groups are going to vote the most intently, and then to watch campaigns pander to those, gr- yeah. <laughs> pander to those groups so polls, in a way, kind of drive the direction of an election in terms of issues. Because, look, campaigns and candidates, and particularly at the national level, have an unbelievable array of, of data sources to identify who is likely to vote, what their right. demographic is, what their issues are, and then play to those issues in an attempt yeah. To, to, yeah. to win an election. Yeah, and, and particularly this year, I mean, the Trump campaign has made it very clear I mean, you, we all know that turnout in the United States and turnout in Pennsylvania is horrible. I mean, it's just... It's what, a, is it it's what is it normally? Well, I mean, very often it's 50%, sometimes 60% in there. But, I mean, where are the rest of the people <laughs> in <laughs> right. the country? I mean, it's still their country. Everything that happens yeah. affects them as well. So the Trump campaign is very aggressively going after people who don't vote. If yeah. they are successful in that... That could yeah. change the nature of an election. Look, I, I point out all the time in speeches that I give that I'm not predicting, but you can't rule out that Trump can win re-election. I mean, he lost the popular vote by 2.2 percent. I'll put it another way, 2.9 million votes. He could lose the popular vote by 4 or 5 million. And still win still election. win the Electoral College wow. if he wins Pennsylvania Michigan, Wisconsin, and let's throw in the 29 electoral votes from Florida. But there's another key point. It plays in our state, but it plays across the country. And here's what it is. 
The Republican Party is now the party of small town and rural America. The Democratic Party is the party of urban America. And the battle is really over the suburbs, Mm. which 15, 20 years ago were a wholly owned subsidiary of the Republican Party. Now they've been trending Democratic. That's why the Democrats swept the midterm elections last year, not just nationally, but in our state as well. Now, when you do your polling, are you taking into consideration the millennials? Are you getting more millennials to participate? No, whatever comes up. Remember, remember, Mm -hmm. you can't. You can't really target. You got to be be concerned that you don't make up something. But they've got to be in the mix, right? Of course. Because of the sheer numbers. The sample draws proportionately from... Right. So two, just two other quick issues, and, and I think John would, would understand this. I sat in once with a Gallup uh, polling representatives who talked about how the words you use can really impact the effectiveness and the accuracy of your poll. You just shade the, or use a different word, and, and sometimes that's done inadvertently, but sometimes it's done deliberately. So... How do you make sure you're doing neutral <laughs> words? I mean, yeah. that seems to be a huge art. Well, there's right. lots of tests that get done by pollsters to look at the words that get employed and make some sense out of them. But you're absolutely right. That's one of the things that sometimes party and candidate polls do. Yeah, it's called push. Yeah. Push. Okay, go ahead, John. Take <laughs> yeah. it. It's a push poll. I mean, if you're running against somebody and you know a negative aspect about that person, you phrase a question in a way that gets that negative information to the person that's being polled, and that can change the result. You know, how do you feel about Tom Wolf? Well, I like the guy. He's a nice guy. I'll probably vote for him. Well, would it interest you to know that, Tom, you know, and you just mm-hmm. put some negative aspect in there, and that changes the outcome. Yeah. So push polls, and that's, Terry's right. You see those from campaigns. You see those from candidates and from parties, not so much from legitimate pollsters who rate well with uh, Nate Silver. So do you find that sometimes just the fact of conducting a poll can affect voters? I mean, <laughs> well, we hear that all the time, yeah. all the time. It absolutely does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I think we have to be careful about that. I think here's the concern that some people have, that if a poll shows a candidate defeating their opponent handily, will the people on the receiving end of the negative aspect of it not turn out? Mm. Will people not vote if their candidate... More and more, however. And really the other way, too. I mean, if your candidate yeah. is well ahead and you're you busy stay on election home. day, you but might But more stay and home. more, the partisanship levels are so high, I don't think that's nearly as great as it used to be. Partisanship is so high, people are going to turn out simply because they can't stand the candidates in another party, regardless of what the polls So that's say. a sign that we might get a good turnout. I mean, a greater turnout than usual if people are energized, right? I think next year is going to be high. I think it's going to be high, Given too. the controversial nature of the Trump presidency. Well, that's yeah. good. I have one final thing to throw at you since we, we've already done a podcast looking at Battleground PA and how important we're going to be. But let me ask you, how important are we going to be here in Pennsylvania? How important is your polling going to be here in well, Pennsylvania? Well, let me put it this way. Yeah. Every expert that I follow thinks that three Rust Belt battleground states are, are going to be determinative, as I indicated before, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And Donald Trump's president of the United States, because he won those three states, and let's throw in Ohio, that tends to be more Republican than the three I mentioned. The three I mentioned, his victory was 1% or less. So we're not talking about huge victory. And then let's throw in Florida, which was about 1% or so. 
a Trump victory. They have 29 electoral votes. We have 20. We have the fifth largest number of electoral votes Pennsylvania does. We're tied with Illinois. So the bottom line here is we're already seeing the candidates in this state pretty frequently, despite the fact that our primary next year is April 28th after the nomination could well be wrapped up. Yeah. And the other thing, Joyce, that that strikes me about Pennsylvania is the diversity issue. I mean, not to generalize, but to generalize, the Republican (laughs) Party is not currently seen as a party of diversity. The Democratic Party certainly is, probably more so than ever before. Of the northeastern states, Pennsylvania is the least diverse, demographically diverse state. I think that that's a plus for the Trump campaign, and I think they're going to work it really hard. Well, I want to thank you both. Thank John Bayer and G. Terry Madonna for joining us today to talk about just what's going on with the polling and whether we can trust them in Battleground PA. Thank you. This was Battleground PA. Be sure to rate and subscribe to us so you don't miss a beat. Have an idea for an episode? Tweet us at Battleground PA or email us at topics at battlegroundpa.org. Meanwhile, stay in the know between episodes on penlive.com. Battleground PA is hosted by Penn Live's opinion and editor, Joyce Davis, and is produced by Penn Studios director, Salim Michel McClouf, and edited by Martin Boutros. For more info and past episodes, visit us at battlegroundpa.org.